Welcome everyone to the Lost with Whiskey podcast. My name is Eric and I'm joined this month by my co-hosts Tom and Clay. Good morning. Hey, how's it going? There have been many disturbing news stories that have developed lately. However, there are some stories that we just want to highlight for you all before we get into it. To start off, Senior White House advisor and person undeserving of his top secret security clearance, Jared Kushner, reportedly curtailed a national coronavirus testing plan for Democratic voting states to attempt to blame the governors of those Democratic states for the coronavirus outbreak within those. Is it just me or does every day the White House seem more and more like an episode of The Sopranos? <laughs> Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has wreaked havoc on the U.S. Postal Service's organizational structure, ousting top executives from key posts and a shuffling around of other officials. Following this move, the Postal Service has advised 46 states and D.C. that voters in those areas may be disenfranchised due to delayed mail-in ballots during a pandemic. Rain, sleet, snow. Corruption, though, that one, that one hurts. <laughs> An explosion in Beirut, killing 160 people and wounding thousands more, has birthed massive outrage, leading to the resignation of Lebanese Prime Minister Hassan Diab and his cabinet. Yeah, imagine having a government that actually takes responsibility when it screws up. <laughs> and another blow to a B country, Belarus's autocratic Alexander Lukashenko has alleged a landslide 80% victory against the opposition candidate. This has sparked widespread national and international condemnation of alleged vote rigging. There have been reports of Belarusian police beating and torturing protesters. I was going to make a joke until that last line. This guy. Yeah, I don't think uh, I can really say anything on this one now. Mm -mm. Parallel to other calls, the ACLU has called for the dismantling of the Department of Homeland Security citing DHS's actions in Portland, Oregon, as one of many examples of the agency's inability to act congruent with the Constitution. Lastly, Joe Biden has chosen Kamala Harris as his vice presidential running mate. But I think that we'll get back to that one a little bit later. So, boys, what are we drinking? Well, I'm having an Irish coffee, just trying to, you know, wake up, stay sharp for our first full podcast episode. Uh, but I actually learned something interesting about what I had on our last episode, mm. uh, the Orange Crush. I learned that the Orange Crush is not a drink that is well-known in other parts of the country. They heard Orange Crush, and they thought you were, about, you were just talking about what Joe Biden's going to do to uh, President Trump in November. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, Actually, they thought I was talking about the soda, which is <laughs> even worse. Uh, but so for those who don't know, an orange crush is vodka, orange liqueur, and fresh squeezed orange juice with ice. Mm. It's delightful. Uh, what I had last time was that, but with bourbon instead. And Tom, what about you? Uh, I am enjoying a uh, scotch on the rocks right now. This is actually a uh, subtle uh, nod to my good friend Eric. Uh, so I guess it's been a couple of years now. Damn, we're getting old. Yeah. But we went to uh, we went to a, one of our favorite bars in D.C. And uh, Eric, uh, this was he's really the the whiskey connoisseur uh, out of the three of us. Uh, but he'd never tried scotch much. before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Old Granddad is a great whiskey. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about, Eric. <laughs> but uh, Eric wanted to uh, try a scotch for the first time. Uh, and this super pretentious bartender uh, straight up refused to give Eric scotch. And not just because he thought uh, he was, you know, with a 12-year-old when he looked over at me. <laughs> but he told us something along the lines of, uh, he's not going to serve Eric scotch because he didn't want to make a liar out of him. His theory was that because scotch is an acquired taste, the only people who uh, begin drinking it are people who are uh, trying to impress their girlfriend's dads or their boss. The uh, misogyny aside, uh, it was just really super pretentious, but I guess in a, as an act of rebellion uh, in an honor of Eric, some scotch on the ice. Thank you. This reminds me of that other time when we went to a bar i can't remember where but this was in dc somewhere yes and yes. Uh, we we have been to many of those <laughs> yes i ordered a seven and seven and the bartender in a whiskey bar we're in a whiskey bar i order a seven and seven one of you know an original classic cocktail oh no this was um this was annapolis i remember this now it was definitely dc you're wrong it was in dc oh. the bar was called I just didn't want to put them on blast on our <laughs> But then the bartender gives me this look and says, you think we have Seagrubs here? You think we have Seagrubs? Yeah. Like, man, get out of here. I remember that. That was, okay, don't take my money then, bartender. I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> Goodbye, sir. I don't remember this, and now I'm just sad that you guys went to a whiskey bar without me. You were there, bud. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it was a whiskey bar. You expect me to remember what happened there? <laughs> and so, so then return to me as always. I am drinking Jameson Black Barrel. It was a gift to me, a Christmas gift, um, or USO Go. And I only broke open to it recently since my stash has started to run low. And it's really quite good. It's a big improvement over just your rank and file Jameson. <laughs> nice. I nice. feel targeted, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the story about Kamala Harris. So finally, Joe Biden has announced his running mate. Uh, it felt like it took forever because of how long the you know, Biden has been the presumed nominee. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think, not just about Harris, but what do you guys think about the level of importance of the vice president and the role of the vice president in a campaign? And within that framework, then maybe we can go and look at what Harris is going to do within that. Well, Clay, I mean, at this point, uh, especially like inside the Beltway, the vice presidency, like talking about its level of importance has almost become cliche. Um, I mean, the first person to hold the office, you know, uh, John Adams, he said something along the lines of, uh, my country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the intention of man has contrived or his imagination conceived. So not, not exactly high marks. And, and that was distilled to the beautiful twist of wisdom vice president john garner stated when he said the vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm piss <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more succinct than adams yeah he uh it's on the nose we'll say but um 
like I said, but I think that while it becomes a pretty good punchline, uh, I think the vice presidency is still a little bit more than that. Um, histor- at least the modern vice presidency. Let me, let me preface it with that. Um, historically, uh, especially the vice presidential uh, candidate in the, um, in the election itself, is typically used to kind of balance out the ticket. Um, before the 19th century, it was mostly a ge- geographical thing. Uh, this is still when states uh, were kind of like preeminent over the federal systems of government. Uh, so it was a really big deal to have each state represented accordingly. So this is why you saw, um, even in the first election, Washington, a uh, Virginian, was balanced out by Adams, the uh, Mass- Massachusetts. Someone's going to write in and complain about my pronunciation of that, but that's fine. <laughs> and even um, and even as recently as 1960, you figure again, another Massachusetts. Uh, John Kennedy being balanced out by the Texan uh, Johnson. Um, but then as, as we go on, uh, you also see a lot of balancing politically, whether it's the ultra-conservative Reagan with the um, more center, air quotes, center-right uh, George H.W. Bush, or even um, the, again, more center-right Dole with the loony rightist Kemp um, to try to appeal to that missing faction of the nominees party. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big thing is age. Uh, and I don't want to dwell on this one because I like to forget that it ever happened. But the big example of this one, of course, is McCain and Palin. Well, and Biden and Harris actually could be an example of this too. That, you know, Biden is two, two and a half decades older than Harris. So mm-hmm. this is very true. definitely big age disparity there. Yeah. But I think that kind of the big difference um, of where we see kind of the traditional picks versus what we see now, both in the role of the vice presidential nominee and the vice president himself, um, is that you don't see as big of a balancing act happening anymore, especially when it comes to the question of um, uh, politics. So what we really saw this was uh, back in the beginning of the 1992 election. So you have Bill Clinton who is, you know, this young baby boomer, back when baby boomers were young, uh, candidate coming out as a center-left Southerner, something that up to that point in the party, you figure the elections before him, you've had Dukakis, you've had McGovern, a lot of, like, very progressive, leftward-leaning candidates. So Bill Clinton comes in with his, you know, jazz music and his uh, saxophone, uh, and his, you know, uh, all, all that encompasses Bill Clinton. Um, And instead of picking a vice president that would balance it um, really on any of these levels, he picks Al Gore, who, again, you know, you get a southerner baby boomer who can, at least at the time, be described probably even more now, to be honest, as center left. And then once they actually get into office, you kind of see Gore being almost as a first among equals uh, of his advisors. You know, you figure... uh, he was entrusted by Clinton to oversee relations with Russia, uh, telecommunications at the kind of uh, period in our history where the internet is really kicking off. Um, and then... Yeah, I mean, he did invent the internet oh, after all. I'm groaning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he ever actually said he invented the internet, did he? So I believe the exact quote was, I took the initiative in creating the internet, which... Is open to interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> it 
It's certainly not saying I created the internet, but it's also not saying I didn't create the internet. Okay, that's fair. Um, but again, I mean, you know, he was also, he was, he was obviously uh, an advisor who was capable of just doing the, you know, weddings and funeral thing. Well, and I mean, if we want to talk about powerful advisors in the vice presidency, the very next vice president, you know, Dick Cheney, basically was the president. (laughs) (laughs) He was basically the puppet master behind the shadow government, the man behind the curtain, if you will. So Yeah, I mean, and even then, I mean, you're talking like balancing politically, like, I mean, between Cheney and Bush, I mean, a conversation about which of them is more conservative is, uh, you know, you start talking about who the tallest of the seven dwarfs are. (laughs) But, um, and then, yeah, even then, um, you figure like politically speaking, or, um, or like, we'll say advantageous to an electoral college victory. Cheney's from Wyoming. I mean, we're talking about three electoral votes in a state that I can't even like even imagining a situation where Wyoming doesn't vote for a Republican is just beyond comprehension for me. And, and Tom, that's interesting. And that, that kind of brings me to something I want to talk about where, where geographic diversity, while still an important, it was, you know, really integral component of vice presidential candidates, you know, back in the 19th and 20th century is still an important, but not as important role now. And, and, you know, in the modern vice presidential candidate, you know, when when we look at this study from 1804 through 1900 showed that the average state had about 3.6 of the available electoral college votes, while the average electoral college vote for a vice presidential candidate's home state was seven percent so there was this massive you know difference between you know what you would look for in a vice presidential candidate geographically you know back in the 1800s rather than what you would look for trying to deliver a whole state exactly with one guy because it's actually interesting because if you i mean maybe you guys might know off the top of your head but i can't even really think of a vice presidential candidate or really to be honest even a um presidential candidate who has come from what we would consider a swing state, at least in like the last like, you know, 20 or so years. So I, yeah, that's a great question. Is Virginia considered a swing state anymore? I wouldn't really call it a swing state. It would, I guess, guess, yeah, I guess Tim Kaine would be the closest, but even then, I mean, it's in this election cycle. Well, Eric, do you know what, uh, what way did Virginia go? Like in 2000, 2004, well, in 2004, they were for, they voted for Bush. Yeah. Okay. So I guess you could, I don't know if I would call it a swing vote in 2016 though. How do you feel about that statement? I would not consider it a swing state anymore. Uh, I mean, since Obama, they have not gone for a Republican. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. the, the party dynamics have changed a great deal since yeah. the 2004 election yeah so it's certainly not a swing state it's more of a transitioning state so yeah so i wouldn't even call tim kane uh you know somebody who was there to deliver a state Mm -hmm. i think tim kane was there to be unexciting yeah not not Mm -hmm. rock the boat at all and and so you know when we're we're looking at these vice presidential candidates into the, the more modern era we see that there are a lot more qualifications that you know, presidents look for, or people running for president look for, um, which include like gender, race, religion, age, education, military experience, experience in Washington, or 
lack of experience in Washington. <laughs> Exposure to national media, experience, and other desirable, quote, desirable qualities. Um, however, geographic diversity is still but important. Um, for example, from 1976 to 2012, 11 out of 14 presidential tickets achieved geographic diversity. And 12 out of 14 achieved diversity of governmental experience. So when you say geographic diversity, you're talking about presidents from different regions of the country. President, vice president from different regions. So in in a sense, it's not necessarily looking for states where you have a higher proportion of electoral college votes. But it's still looking at the geographic area of where your vice presidential candidate is coming from to be advantageous for your campaign. Now, do you think that's a holdover from the days of when people were looking for like geographic diversity because of electoral college uh, advantages? Or do you think it's just, a, you know, do, do I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that's specifically on purpose? Or do you think that's just kind of a happenstance? I think it could be for both, really. It depends. And it can also for sure definitely depend on the candidate himself, right? So I feel like a, a modern campaign would want to steer away from a highly, like a Northeastern ticket. So yeah. a, a, a presidential candidate from Pennsylvania and, you know, a vice president from Maryland. I don't think that that's really something that they want to be looking at because then you have the lack of just experience dealing with, you know, constituents in other areas of the country. Um, and that actually does tie into what we saw in 2016 where... Pence was on the ticket with Trump, and among other things, people thought that he would help in the Midwest, where Trump did very poorly in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, especially with Pence kind of in general, because I, I mean, with everything else in the Trump presidency, a lot of norms were broken, but I think Pence actually even kind of still falls under the um, kind of trend that we've been seeing with vice presidents uh, in terms of becoming more important than just winning the actual election. Um, Because yes, Pence kind of soothed the fears of a lot of uh, evangelical Christians. Um, And I mean, I don't necessarily know if there was ever any doubt about Trump losing anywhere in the Midwest other than maybe Iowa. Um, But he still kind of brought that constituency of Republicans who are worried about President Trump into the fold. Um, But since he's taken office, um, I think you've also seen him much more behind the scenes than past vice presidents, but still acting as that first among equals uh, with advisors. Um, He's been uh, tapped by the Trump presidency to lead the new COVID task force. He's kind of become the de facto liaison between the White House and Republican governors. And then he's also the one that has essentially the only working relationship with anyone on the Hill. So he also tends to be the one who goes down there to negotiate when, you know, the rare instances where governing is actually happening. So I definitely agree with you that Pence has been very active as a vice president and that in that more modern mold of what a vice president. We saw the same thing from Biden uh, as vice president to Obama, and we'll circle back to that in a minute. But I think also you might be underselling a little bit Pence's role in the election. I think that there were a lot of people who, right or wrong, were concerned about Trump's ability to win over the religious wing of the party. And I think bringing Pence on to the ticket, nobody was worried about those people 
going over and voting for Clinton. Mm -hmm. But I think bringing Pence on board helps keep those people from staying home. That makes sense. On election day. Mm -hmm. And that brings up an interesting thing I found when researching this, where a, a 2016 study by 538 found that between 1980 and 2012, all but two Democratic candidates picked running mates who moved the ticket to the center. And hmm. then Republicans, for the majority of them, their VP picks moved their ticket to the right. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I figure you look at the candidates that they've been having. I mean, McCain, Romney. So I guess, well, okay, well, that's actually an interesting question. Did Pence move the ticket to the right or to the left compared to Trump? In this instance, it's it's definitely hard to quantify. Because yeah. we didn't really know where Trump's politics were on a number of issues until he was actually in office. And at least traditionally conservative issues. Yeah. For me, I think that it's, he definitely did move the ticket to the right. Pence did. And I think a large part of that goes to kind of the unknown that was Donald J. Trump in the summer of 2016. He was, he was and continues to be more of a personality than really having any firm policy positions. well, so do you think that it was that it moved to the to the right or just a clarification of Trump's policies? That's a great question, and I don't really have a good answer for you. I mean, I don't <laughs> I think we have seen Trump move around so wildly haphazardly on policy. I don't think he is a man with many very strong convictions on policy i think he's Mm -hmm. a man who you know and this has been said many times by people more than me and you know he's more of a populist than he is a conservative he's gonna go where he thinks he can get the people to go you know he's gonna go where the people are at yeah i think um i think that's a really interesting question there eric uh and i think it actually even might underscore the importance of the vice presidential nominee um, I don't know if this is a standalone moment or maybe if we could call it a larger trend. But I know one of the big fears, I, and I'm not sure if I'd call it a fear, but one of, the, one of the things you constantly hear about the president is that he often takes the position of the last person he talks to. So I think that Pence, especially to the evangelical Christian electorate, but also to the Republicans party as a whole, they kind of saw him, I think, as a stabilizing force someone who would have that last conversation with him and kind of keep him within the left and right limits of the traditional party standard Mm -hmm. to the extent of which that has worked. I'm not entirely sure. Um, But I think at least, you know, naive summer 16 us, that may have been the thought process. It's a good idea anyway. Certainly. (laughs) I'm just saying I spent election night gym drunk on uh, Clay's floor. So, I mean... You spent election night asleep on the floor. <laughs> a lot has changed between then and now. Well, and then some things stay the same. Yeah, I was going to say, only some things. I definitely, but I, I don't think that this is some kind of a trend. I think Trump is is clearly an exception to the typical presidential candidate and their views and their own views and their certainty on their own views of their own political positions. And to be honest, I'm actually surprised we haven't heard more like palace intrigue stories of him dumping Pence, Um, especially considering everything we just said about, you know, kind of 
I hate to use this phrase because it seems like it's almost a cliche at this point, but there was a lot of talk about Pence being quote unquote the adult in the room. And if we have seen anything from this administration, it's that President Trump resents the idea of someone else being the adult in the room. Um, so to be honest, the fact that Pence has managed to make it this far without even necessarily whispers of him being traded out for, God forbid, like Donald Jr. or like some other ridiculous nominee idea um, might actually be a testament to his ability to uh, play the political game. So I think that begs the question if we can even consider, you know, just swapping out parts in between elections, you know, between terms, is the vice president at all important anymore for the election you know does the vice president add any valuable tangibly to the ticket well i don't know i mean at least in modern modern time uh i feel like it's not talked about that often i know for a while there there was actually talk about replacing biden with clinton in 2012 um i mean fdr replaced uh one of his vice presidents basically with every turn so there i mean there have been 48 vice presidents for 45 presidents. So the idea of swapping out, uh, you know, your running mate between the years isn't exactly unheard of, uh, especially in a role where that person often doesn't feel like it's very fulfilling for them anyway. Yeah. And just to add to that, there have actually been, uh, you know, numerous times where the office has stood vacant for months, you know, when, uh, especially in an election year, the old vice president has resigned or passed or, you know, been thrown in prison for <laughs> tax fraud, you know, criminal charges like Spiro T. Agnew, Maryland, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, the vice presidency has been vacant for, you know, probably cumulatively many years throughout our history. And when he's talking about vacancies, he's just not he's not just referring to the time that Dan Quayle was vice president. but in all seriousness though i think um especially kind of bringing it back to the the topic we first discussed at the top of the show i think to kind of see what biden is expecting to get out of his vice presidential pick it's probably worth looking at the vice presidency of joe biden himself i think that um he really does kind of fall into more of the modern the um the modern image of what we've been talking about yeah the archetype of what we've been talking about I mean, more so even than, I mean, anyone besides Cheney, who we've already said was the president, he huge hand in the actual governance of the country during President Obama's term. I mean, you think, figure that any time there was a negotiation between the Republicans on the Hill and the White House, Joe Biden was usually the one leading those negotiations. Well, and so that actually goes back to what Eric earlier said about the vice president of the Democratic Party typically taking the ticket closer to the center. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the other thing I'd counter to that is, so yes, we've seen the vice president come to more prominence during the governance process as time has passed, as we've entered this modern age. Uh, But how much of that is about the usefulness of a vice president? And how much of it is about the person who is the vice president wanting to set up a run for themselves in four or eight years? Right. Because I, I definitely think from what Tom you explained regarding Biden's effectiveness as a vice president, none of that was necessarily tied to being a vice president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and negotiations on the Hill are not necessarily something that the 
vice president has sole power over. Um, it's almost as akin to, you know, a senior White House advisor going down and performing negotiations on the Hill. You know, it's, it's not necessarily an aspect of the vice presidency. So then which begs the question, if the if one of the most important aspects or at least seen aspects of the vice president doesn't even have to be required from a vice president, wherein lies the value of a vice presidency? Well, I mean, that that gets down to the heart of it, I think, because let's be honest, there's only one job description for the uh, vice president as laid out in the Constitution, and that's to have a, you know, a heartbeat. His full-time job is to be, uh, I can't remember who said it now, but it's something along the lines of, like, he's spare parts for the country. (laughs) (laughs) The position has grown a little bit over time. You know, he is a statutory member of the National Security Council, which is, is a growth of the position, not necessarily a very important growth, I think, in terms of the entirety of what a vice president could be. Uh, but that's definitely something other than just a heartbeat. And he does get to preside over the Senate, but sometimes. Occasionally. Well, I mean, to be fair, though, there have been, on a multiple occasions now, major pieces of legislation that have been passed solely because a vice president is able to cast the deciding vote. The big one that comes to mind right now is Dick Cheney with the uh, Bush era tax cuts, which, you know, nothing is so permanent as a government tax cut, it seems like. I mean, to name the only one. Oh, is that is that the only one? What you meant. Uh, I wouldn't. It's not the only one, but many, many vice presidents have never broken a tie in the Senate. And the ones who have broken many ties in the Senate Uh, We're talking about John Adams. (laughs) Uh, H.W. Bush broke a few. John C. Calhoun broke 31 ties. Wow. Phenomenal. Wow. But Lyndon B. Johnson never broke a tie. Gerald Ford, Dan Quayle, Joe Biden, John Tyler, Andrew Johnson, did I say him already? Teddy Roosevelt. We've seen many, many vice presidents never break a tie. So I think the role of the vice president as president of the senate is marginal at best they get to show up on the right. first day and yeah. uh, swear all the senators in but i think that actually might though i mean if, if, if there's something to be said about dc it's that your job description really doesn't matter what matters is what you make of that position um and i think that applies to the vice presidency possibly more than any other position in you know inside of uh the city because Especially when compared to the early presidency, and I mean like the early presidency, like John Adams' early presidency, there's just more government. I mean, you figure the, uh, really starting with FDR and the New Deal, the rapid expansion of the government and of the executive branch specifically, I feel has almost necessitated the extension of the president themselves. And I think that's kind of where the VP tends to kind of swoop in and make their money. Uh, metaphorically, or in uh, Spiro Agnew's case, uh, literally. Um, (laughs) But that's what you typically see now, is that the president will entrust their vice president with some kind of portfolio that deals with a large range of those issues. I mean, for example, I mentioned earlier about Biden negotiating with Congress, but he was also um, a big part in the actual execution of the stimulus package passed in, what was that, 2009? Um, He had a large hand in actually directing the funding to the various uh, executive agencies. He was also a massive help 
when it came to foreign policy. Uh, he was often President Obama's extension to these various countries, especially when it was dealing with Russian relations. Um, and you can say the same about said Dick Cheney. Al Gore, we already mentioned, invented the internet, so that's pretty cool. And Pence, too, like I said, he's, in addition to just being the um, president's ambassador to the religious right, he's also, like I said, really taken up that role of making sure that the White House stays connected with uh, the various state governments. Fair. And, and, and to your credit, and as I think what was mentioned earlier, you know, Pence is also overseeing Trump's COVID task force as well. So clearly that is something important, whether, you know, the, the uh, effectiveness of the COVID task force <laughs> is certainly up for debate, but at least that is, is something that he has been tasked with. However, especially in, in terms of Pence and the Trump administration, the vice president certainly is not the only person who's acting as an extension of the president himself. Many of his family members and the aforementioned Jared Kushner have certainly <laughs> act at, acted as the extension of the president, even in international affairs. So this also may beg, beg the question of, you know, was that something of a trend? Will that become something that we see more presidents doing using other less official advisors as extensions of themselves replacing other powers of the vice presidency? There's a word for that, Eric, and it's called nepotism. And I'm really hoping <laughs> it's not a trend that we continue to see. Well, so back to our original, original point. Where do we think... Uh, now vice presidential nominee Harris is going to fit into all this. Um, and so for some quick background on her, uh, she's born in Oakland, California, graduate of Howard University here in D.C. and the UC Hastings College of Law. And made her bones as a prosecutor, worked her way up through various district and city attorney's offices before eventually being elected Attorney General of California in 2010, and obviously more recently, winning election to the Senate in 2016, and then running for president, dropping out, and then being nominated vice president. She also has the distinguished uh, role of having fired a former boss of mine who I particularly didn't like, so that's fun too. <laughs> Add that to the plus. Yeah, side. yeah, that's I have that written down on the pros of my uh, my Kamala Harris. <laughs> <laughs> pros cons list here <laughs> but um but no i think uh in, in all seriousness i think that biden picked a very formidable running mate both in her role as vice presidential candidate and then we'll see eventually in a role as vice president because i think there is the two are obviously the same but very different in what is expected of them I think it's pretty common knowledge that the role of a vice presidential candidate uh, is first and foremost to do no harm. Sarah Palin obviously didn't get the memo on that, but that's typically the <laughs> the first and almost only... Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine was a perfect example of this requirement. <laughs> but I think, I think she has some questions surrounding her that might pop up uh, to challenge this rule, and I think Clay had some thoughts on this later on. But then the other role of a vice presidential nominee and, and the one that I think she's really going to fit well is to be the almost the bad cop in the uh, good cop, bad cop. The hatchet. Yeah, the hatchet man. The, the one who is relentlessly throwing, uh, you know, grenades over the wall at the opposition. And I mean this because, I mean, she is first and foremost a trained prosecutor. She is probably the least conflict-adverse politician I've seen. 
And if you doubt this, just ask Brett Kavanaugh or William Barr. Because if you watch those committee meetings, I mean, she gets she gets going and she does not stop. Um, there was no there was no hesitation to kind of call it as she sees it in those hearings. Which, in addition to making the VP debate, I think much watched television. I think it's it's going to serve her well in that role. But Clay, I, th- I think you have some more points on the the first. Yeah. Well, so before we even dig into that, I think you brought up an interesting point about how the vice presidency has evolved, you know, into this role modern of the attack dog, you know, the the hatchet man, the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the bad cop. In office, the vice president is expected almost to be, at least we've seen recently, the peacemaker, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the bridge That's builder, a good point. You know, to make any repairs between the White House and the Congress. Mm-hmm. So... It's interesting how those roles conflict. I think that the left wing of the Democratic Party is going to have some question marks here. Uh, you know, Eric brought up earlier the typically Democratic candidates for the vice presidency take the party to the center. I think Biden and Harris's politics are very very sad. yeah and I, I think that's even like going into the earlier conversation that we have i mean it has to be noted what does she do for biden politically she's what could arguably be described as center left i mean she abandoned medicare for all as soon as she realized that it wasn't really a uh, super feasible policy and i think that's to be quite honest being generous she's from california a state that is never going to go republican in this election cycle i mean like that's pretty obvious so then it becomes you know we're talking about, I mean, you have the age thing, which I think, again, you know, you guys will probably touch a little bit more on. That. That's a, probably the biggest thing she brings out of the traditional three balancing acts we see of the vice presidential nominee. But I think the, it, it is a really interesting argument to talk about her actual, like, political ideology. Because for an election where Joe Biden was really dogged by the idea that he wasn't progressive enough, I don't necessarily think Harris, for all that she does bring to the table, brings that kind of credibility for him. Certainly not. I don't think Harris adds to the progressives' support of a Biden campaign. Um, And in fact, I think many progressives see it as almost an entrenchment of Biden's not abandonment, but lack of enthusiasm for the progressive side of the Democratic Party. Yeah, you can't really abandon something you were never a part of to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think Biden is thinking correctly that the left is not going to abandon him in significant numbers. You know, the left wing of the Democratic Party, I think, and I also hope, will still turn out for Biden, even if they're unhappy with Harris and even if they're unhappy with Biden, because they are so overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly tired Mm -hmm of the Trump-Pence administration. I think he's counting on still getting the left, so he wanted to push hard for those moderates and independents. And that's an interesting uh, an interesting point, because it, I mean, not to go down the rabbit hole of what if, but it makes you wonder if a similar strategy would have worked against, say, a President Romney, or a President, you know, uh, even a President like Rubio, or God forbid, President Cruz. I think it would have worked against President Cruz. <laughs> I do not think it were, would have worked against any of those yeah. other ones. 
But I do, and just to be clear, I think the the left wing of the party, of which I consider myself an, uh, maybe an associate member. <laughs> you, you send in your membership dues, but you don't attend all the meetings. Right, exactly. I, I think that there are some legitimate grievances, uh, especially especially with her record as California's top mm-hmm. cop. You know, as the California attorney. Maybe general. the use of the words uh, "bad cop" earlier was was not particularly apt on my part. <laughs> <laughs> For some, it definitely was. Some would say it was <laughs> Maybe a little too on the nose. <laughs> um. So a couple examples of this are. So there was a 2011 Supreme Court case, which was stemmed from a 90s class action lawsuit against the state of California, basically asserting that California prisons were horribly overcrowded. It had led to not only inhumane conditions, but also they were pointing to multiple prisoner deaths that could be attributed to the lack of ability to get medical services. And that this was a violation of both the 8th and 14th Amendment. Uh, the issue finally found its way to the Supreme Court under Harris's time as Attorney General. And while she has said that she did not know this argument was going to be made, and she did not personally make this argument, lawyers on her staff argued, among other things, that the state of California should not have to release more prisoners because it would negatively impact the cheap labor system of prison labor. Oof. Which is a pretty big strike, and it's going to come up, I assure you. Um, and then another big strike, uh, Daniel Larson, who uh, was a man convicted of possession of a concealed weapon under California's third strike policy, was sentenced to 28 years to life, would have, I believe, normally been a three-year charge, but because of the third strike policy, uh, 25 years was tacked yeah. on. Highly controversial uh, law implemented in the 90s under the whole, uh, you know, tough-on-crime Democrat stance. Yeah. Oops. Um, so, but it turns out Mr. Larson's defense attorney was completely incompetent. He was later disbarred, uh, and he was proved innocent by the California Innocence Project. Uh, but again, Harris's office argued against his release on technicality that he had waited too long to file his, you know, petition for release. Not a great look. Yeah, not a great look. Uh, and this was after his innocence had been proven in court. Uh, so thankfully, a higher court ordered his release, and he is, to this day, a free man. But I think, um, so what, I know these are just a, a sample of the larger kind of career that she had out in California. But do you think that at this point in a general election, especially against a candidate like Trump and Pence, how, how big of a factor do you think this turns into? I mean, I think it ultimately, I think it depends. I think it is not going to impact many moderates or independents. I don't think that Mm -hmm. at all. I think it could, though, get some people staying home on the left wing of the party. Uh, You know, people who are saying, you know, this ticket doesn't offer anything to me. Uh, Screw it. I'm just going to stay home. And I don't know if that'll be... A big enough impact to swing the election. I certainly 
don't think it will, and I certainly hope it will not be, but I think the left has some legitimate grievances against Harris. And I think the things that harpooned her campaign for the nomination as president are still marks against her as vice president. But then we circle back to the original issue, which is how many people really care about the vice president? So. <laughs> Eric, you're our local, uh, our local civil, uh, civil libertarian. What, what's your take on this? <laughs> well, I mean, in, in general, I don't think it really will matter much at all. I mean, I, I'm still of the general opinion that the vice presidency matters little, especially in the general election. Um, so while I think that these issues will be, as, as, as Clay points out, talking points and are legitimate grievances for, for those concerned regarding civil liberties and, you know, progressive application of justice in, in, in the legal system, I, 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 I hope Democrats have learned from 2016 that sometimes you're going to have to pick the worst of the two evils, and you know? Although even then, I, I feel like, I mean, not ideal by any stance, but surely this isn't as bad as a 2016 pick. No, I don't think so. But I, 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 think, I think the lesson still needs to, to be remembered from 2016. Because I believe there's a, there's a large contingent of you know, Democratic voters or, or voters who may tend to vote for the liberal that aren't in the Democratic Party that are so adverse to four more years of a Trump administration that they'll likely vote for anyone other than Trump. So to them, I don't think this matters at all because as Clay pointed out, it's probably not going to change anyone's minds who weren't already going to vote against <laughs> Trump. And I would say against meaning not necessarily for or supporting of Biden, but against a Trump presidency. The people who were already committed to voting for whoever mm -hmm. else Mm -hmm. are it's not really changing their minds exactly and i think we've seen uh, a bit of an upshot to a other, as much as i love uncle joe uh, a rather you know otherwise uninspiring ticket in the 48 hours after they announced that it would be um, senator harris on the ticket uh, the biden campaign raised 48 million dollars in 48 hours uh, which is big numbers for joe biden We've also already seen a uptake in Biden's already promising poll numbers, especially in the state of Florida, which is, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. the coalition that President Trump built in 2016 basically hinges on maintaining every state that he had. I think not to start going off into the polling game, but it's unlikely, I think, that Michigan stays in there. And if he also is looking at losing Florida in addition to that, I mean, that's got to keep a couple of his guys up at night. But I, I, I think in general, for in, in my view, the Harris nomination matters more it, outside of what the vice president is. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, though, she's now only the third woman to be nominated for the vice presidency and the, the first African-American to be nominated for the vice presidency. Which is no insignificant thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this. And uh, for our next segment, we have a bit of a true crime mixed with some historical uh, elements uh, coming your way. So We heard true crime is big. We're trying true crime now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
This is this is the part where we get that true crime label on our uh, our list on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's dude, Spotify number one podcast uh, coming up uh, thanks to this next segment. Sunday travels, fried chicken with a side of treason. In the hours after the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, the U.S. government was in chaos. For the first time in American history, a president had been murdered, and his assassin was still at large. In an effort to regain control over the situation, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton ordered the Union Army to conduct a massive manhunt to find and arrest John Wilkes Booth and his fellow conspirators. A decision that combined with the use of military tribunals instead of civilian courts would bathe the proceedings that followed in controversy. Arguably, none of the events are more controversial than the arrest and conviction of Dr. Samuel Mudd, the man who set Booth's broken leg just hours after the assassination. The debate about whether Dr. Mudd was a traitor to his country or a simple country doctor at the wrong place at the wrong time, while no longer exactly breaking news. Get it? Because his leg was broken. Lives on today at the Dr. Samuel A. Mudd House Museum in Waldorf, Maryland. Maybe it's the ooey-gooey romantic in me, but I couldn't think of a better place for a triple date. (laughs) As we got off of the highway and began to follow the twisting country road up to the 19th century farmhouse, I couldn't help but wonder how Booth would have been able to find this secluded place in an age where they didn't have decent roads, let alone Google Maps. But I guess that's a question for the tour. The day itself couldn't have been better. Instead of the monsoon rains that the weatherman had predicted, we enjoyed the first cool, clear day of fall with beautiful blue skies. The sign out front as we approached prompted us to walk around to the back and enter through the gift shop. Among the wooden muskets. Wanted one, Clay wouldn't let me. Confederate flag patches. They weren't white flags of surrender, so I assume they were mislabeled. And copies of the Mudd family cookbook. The highlight of said cookbook being old Mrs. Mudd's recipe for fried chicken, a dish Clay insists is best served. With a side of treason. Our tour guide was an elderly man in a tweed driver's cap. His keys were on a proud veteran lanyard. Looking at him, one couldn't help but wonder if his keychain meant that he fought for the North or for the South. We entered the parlor, and the tour guide started to give us some background on the infamous Dr. Mudd. The fourth of ten children from a local family, Dr. Mudd continued the family tradition when, in 1854, he graduated from the Baltimore Medical College. With the ink on his medical diploma still wet, Dr. Mudd married his childhood sweetheart and set up his new practice. When the Civil War broke out, Dr. Mudd was decidedly a Southern sympathizer. Tom, it's pronounced traitor. You're not wrong. The owner of multiple slaves, Dr. Mudd had often expressed his dislike, even his hatred, for President Lincoln and his policies. While not necessarily an active member of the Confederacy, Mudd was not exactly loyal to the Union side either. After showing off the Mudd family chamber pot, Disgusting, by the way, that thing didn't even have a lid. I agree, it was a crappy introduction. Our tour guide (laughs) took us into the front entryway, and we got to see what we really came for. Standing in the cramped entryway, our tour guide motioned to the front door. 
Just three and a half hours before Secretary of Stanton would declare to the room that Lincoln now belonged to the ages, two men would have knocked loudly on it, waking Mudd and his family in the early morning hours. One of the men standing in the doorway was hurt, experiencing severe pain from a badly fractured leg, and asked for the doctor's assistance. Whether or not Samuel Mudd knew it at the time, it is up for debate. But now that no question that these two men were John Wilkes Booth and one of his co-conspirators, David Harold. Mudd invited the men in and set the patient, Mr. Booth, down on a couch in his parlor, a couch that was now only a few feet away from where our group now stood. Mudd attempted to examine the man's leg, but due to the swelling, he was unable to remove his riding boots. Mudd suggested that the party move upstairs to the guest room that doubled as an examination room, and as we walked up the stairs, you could hear the creaking that they too must have heard as they carried Booth up. The room is still arranged as it was that night, the only modern addition being the painting depicting the acts that would have taken place in it. It was in this room that Mudd first cut away Booth's boot, exposing his leg and allowing him to examine and set the fracture that came as a result of Booth's swan dive out of the presidential box at Ford's Theater. After daybreak, Mudd made arrangements to provide the man with crutches and, unsuccessfully, secure a carriage for the visitors. The two men left soon after, armed with the medical care and directions provided by Mudd to their next destination. Hours after Booth had left, Mudd was visited by a military investigator, Hotter Booth's Trails. When questioned about his early morning visitor, Mudd claimed that the man whose leg he fixed was a stranger to him. Yeah, traitor and a liar. A few days later, suspicious of Mudd's dodgy answers, the military investigator returned to Mudd's home to conduct a search. When the commanding officer told the Mudds of his intentions, Sarah Mudd brought down from upstairs a boot that had been cut off the visitor's leg three days earlier. The officer examined the boot, and on the top inside of it, written in pen, was named J. Wilkes. I'm going to stop you right there for a second. Seriously, it's like he was asking to be called. Who writes their name inside of their shoe? This isn't fucking Toy Story. <laughs> Mudd claimed not to have noticed the writing, and when shown a picture of Booth, said he did not recognize him. Yeah, likely story. Mudd was arrested and tried by a military tribunal. At Mudd's trial, the prosecution produced testimony that showed a prior relationship between Booth and Mudd, in contradiction to Dr. Mudd's claims. Several witnesses testified that they had seen Mudd and Booth buying a horse near Mudd's farm, seen them standing together outside the National Hotel, and visiting with other conspirators in Lincoln's assassination, including John Surratt. Fun fact about him, actually. So his mother, Mary Surratt, was the one who owned the tavern where Booth and his other co-conspirators planned the assassination. You can still visit it today. It's a walk and roll now, and it actually has some pretty decent Chinese food. The investigator who initially approached Mudd would tell the tribunal that when we first asked Dr. Mudd whether two strangers had been there, he seemed very much excited and got pale as a sheet of paper with blue around his lips, like a man frightened at something he had done. Mudd's defense attorneys retorted by highlighting the fact that there existed a much more interesting dichotomy within the debate. The duties of a medical professional versus the duties of a citizen at war. Specifically, defense counsel mm -hmm. argued that while it is true that my client, Dr. Mudd, may have aided Booth's escape by setting his leg, he is a medical professional. 
he is bound by an ancient oath to treat the patient in front of him. The argument basically boiled down to the idea that it was not a crime to fix a broken leg, even if the leg of a presidential assassin, and even if the doctor knew it was the leg of a presidential assassination. In the end, his duties as a medical professional would overcome any other obligations. But in the end, the argument was unsuccessful. The tribunal found him guilty. Mudd was sentenced to a life of hard labor at Fort Jefferson. At this point, our tour guide led us to a glass case in the upstairs landing, filled with mementos from Mudd's time at Fort Jefferson, including the keys to his jail cell, which I thought was strange. Who gets the keys to their own cell? Our guide explained that, while hard, the time spent at Fort Jefferson was a blessing in disguise because it allowed Mudd a chance to redeem himself. In 1867, yellow fever broke out on the island and began to claim the lives of prisoners there and also the only doctor. Mudd, who had experience dealing with this specific disease, offered his services and saved the lives of many prisoners and guards on the island. As a reward for his service, President Andrew Johnson granted him a presidential pardon in 1869, and after leaving Fort Jefferson, Mudd returned to his Maryland home and lived there until his death in 1883. The question of Mudd's innocence or guilt and the extent to which he should have been held responsible for setting Booth's leg, has been debated for decades. While attempting to clear Mudd's name have been made by descendants, local advocates, got a cameo in the second National Treasure movie, and has even been taken up by House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, doubts still remain. So I uh, guess the only logical uh, path here is to see what you boys think. What are you thinking, Clay? Did he do it? Tom, not only did he do it, he knew what he was doing. He was in on it from the start. It's, I, I can't see anything else. Uh, like you said at the top, this farmhouse is in the middle of nowhere. Even by Southern Maryland standards, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no way he could have just found this place on his own without knocking on a hundred doors first. He knew where he was going right from the jump. The fact that it took them three days to come forward with the boot with the incriminating evidence of his name written on it. At, he did it. At, he did it. But <laughs> interesting fact, interesting fact, the phrase, my name is Mud, your name is Mud, is actually about him. This guy was so <laughs> bad. He got a whole phrase about how terrible you are, and he's the star. <laughs> what are you thinking, Eric? Well, I, I'm, I'm not certain I'm as sure as Clay, and I think I might agree with um, the Colonel Sanders rendition we, we listened to a little bit earlier. <laughs> it it, it seems, firstly, I think there's the question of, you know, what role did he play in the pre-planning of the assassination? And then the separate issue is regarding, you know, his, his duty as a medical professional. Um, I, I feel as though we can't, hold and give medical you know assistance based on whether we we like the person or not or if they can they've done political things that we agree with or not you know i'm certainly not defending the political assassination to everybody but i think it's it's it's, it's a bit of a dangerous road to try and condemn you know a healthcare provider from providing health care to, to someone who's injured well now hold on hold on i think i need to retort to that I don't have any problem with a healthcare provider 
providing care to somebody who's injured to somebody who needs care what i do have a problem with is this guy hiding behind the hippocratic oath when he was clearly clearly a co-conspirator he was in on this from the beginning as usual i think i fall somewhere in between you two i think it's important to to remember too at the time this occurred this as i mentioned at the top this was the first time that a political assassination had ever happened in the united states and it came right on the heels of what I think is arguably the darkest hour of American history. You know, President Lincoln led the nation through um, just years of bloodshed. Uh, and now that the Civil War had finally ended and it looked like it was time to start rebuilding, uh, he was suddenly, you know, taken from the nation. And as a result, uh, especially Secretary of War Stanton uh, and really the nation as a whole just had this knee-jerk reaction. Um, for example, the, the trial itself uh, of all the conspirators, not just Mudd, actually lasted for seven weeks and included 366 witnesses. Um, of the people being tried, you had everyone from, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Mary Surratt, uh, who was the owner of the uh, tavern where they had their meetings to plan the assassination. Uh, she was found guilty and was actually the first uh, woman executed by the United States. But you also had even had people like um, Edmund Spangler, who, uh, while eventually found not guilty, was arrested because he held Booth's horse outside of Ford's theater. Even John Ford himself, who was the owner of the theater where Lincoln was shot, was arrested. So I think that while uh, Mudd is definitely a shady character, uh, I think that the net was cast pretty wide. Well, well, then maybe you could help me understand something, Tom, because I, I, I'm not sure, it, it's, it's at least not clear to me, that what was Mudd's alleged involvement prior to the assassination himself how was he a co-conspirator other than after the facts which we know what happened at least as much as we can and i think that's where the real question of the trial lands uh, and i think that's kind of what got uh kind of missed when they were focusing on the fact that he kind of aided and abetted booth's uh escape there I think to uh, Clay's point, it's not necessarily so much that he fixed the leg, so much more that he uh, lied to the investigators when they came looking for Booth, and that he basically aided and abetted in his escape. If he had simply, you know, fixed the leg and then waited around, uh, that may have been a different story. See, now we've got him on two things. Well, do we know <laughs> how long between, you know, the assassination taking place? And John Wilkes Booth ending up on Dr. Mudd's door. How long was that in between? That's actually a fair point. Lincoln wouldn't have died for another three hours after uh, Mudd set his leg. And so I just, uh, with the magic of the internet, I just discovered uh, that it took about, it took Lincoln about nine hours uh, so to die after being shot by the villain John Wilkes Booth. Cue the scene from the West Wing where Jeb Bartlett asked the exact minute that uh, Lincoln took his last breath. <laughs> so it took took him about six hours to get there. Well, so so it, it seems pretty likely that that Mud had no idea who this guy was at the time. I'm but not you certainly have to remember saying. Also, this is this where he ended up is 90 minutes outside of DC in a car 
dude was riding a horse on a broken leg, so. Yeah, and so he had about nine hours to get there before the president died. So, so your point being that if, considering that one, Lincoln wasn't even dead when uh, Booth arrived at the doorstep, that gives Mudd some cover because he may not have known that the president was assassinated yet. Is that kind of the point you're getting to? At least certainly at the, at the onset of his whole, the involvement that we actually know of, right? It, it, we, there's obviously not, you know, the internet or other means of rapid communication of, of these things. So I, I'm, I'm not saying it's not likely that three days after it has happened that he didn't know that the president was assassinated. <laughs> That's pretty suspicious, but it's just, I, I'm not, I'm not certain to me. That's what's damning about it. it. Surely, surely he must have known in the course of three days, what had happened. The name was written on the inside of the boot. I mean, okay. So maybe he didn't notice that, but then he also tells the investigator, Oh no, like, I didn't recognize that guy. That guy whose picture you just showed me. Nope, uh, he wasn't here. Come on. <laughs> no, that, that that is definitely suspicious. It's definitely suspicious. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's unclear if the evidence presented today against Dr. Mudd would have been enough to definitively prove him guilty in a court today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the standards for the military tribunal uh, were a little, little lackadaisical. Uh, they were definitely out for blood, and they found it. Um, did did Mudd know he was aiding and abetting in the escape of a wounded man, or was it simply a case of a country doctor in the wrong place at the wrong time? I think it's pretty safe to say that since the only person who truly knew what Mudd's intent was was Mudd himself, it's likely that the story will simply never be known. Thanks for listening to the first full episode of the Wonks with Whiskey podcast. We will be coming to you next month with more thoughts, topics, and of course, whiskey. Until next time, keep your glasses full.